When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking with Farah Bakhari about trace. Farah, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Farah. I am a doctoral student in the Department of Literatures and English at Cornell. I work on 20th century African literature, and trauma studies, memory studies, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory. My very first question, what the heck is trace? Yeah, excellent question. <laughs> I immediately regretted wanting to talk about this because I realized it's like impossible concept to succinctly describe within a few minutes, you know? Right. A good place to start would be trace as being essential to Derridian deconstruction in opposition to what Derrida would call logocentrism, right? Like this idea of valuing, of, of writing, of our speech, the idea of a certain kind of rationality, of a transparency that's imagined, right? So I think then I write, then you read what I wrote, and there's this kind of transparent mm. understanding of the truth that is embedded that went from my head to the page to your head, right? Right. And also, I think, in a sense, imagine also against a certain kind of ideas about language and about writing, right, about the sign. So think about structuralism and Saussure and the sign imagine always against what it's not, right? So a man is not a woman, a chair is not a table, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also this kind of implied hierarchy within this kind of binary, right? So Derrida, what he's doing with the trace and deconstruction is destabilizing these hierarchies, right? Destabilizing these oppositional binaries and seeing the tension and this kind of proliferation of meaning in a really simple, broad, very watered down way of defining trace that I think about, you know, will be, is a mark, is an absent presence. It's a presence mm. that's absent. It's a mark by what is no longer there. Right. You can totally choose not to answer this question, but can I ask you to define deconstruction a little bit? Oh my God, how <laughs> dare you? <laughs> you know, it's really, um, yeah, how will I define deconstruction? I think about deconstruction through 
that maxim, that infamous maxim by Derrida, right? There's nothing outside of the text. Mm. Deconstruction, I don't think about it necessarily as a theory, right? But as a practice, right? As a way of reading the text and reading the contradictions that are embedded within the text. Meaning is not overdetermined. I'm not trying to find the truth that was intended by this text, but a meaning is forever proliferating and changing with a way of reading a text. Mm. I think that would be... (laughs) I'm sure so many people are like, no, that's not what deconstruction is. But at least that is how I think about deconstruction. Yeah, that's totally fine by me. Let me ask you my next main question, which is mm-hmm. how do we use trace? Or should I use an article before trace? Should I use a trace, the trace? I think about the trace. How do we use trace? I can talk a little bit about, there's so many different ways that trace shows up in works that are marked by deconstruction, that are doing that kind of Derridian practice. Right. The way I use trace would be, so I work on African literature. I also work on trauma studies and questions of memory and collective memory. Yeah. I think about how can I theorize, study, document, historical processes, historical transmissions, historical traumas, events of which there are no records or of which there are no archives. Or maybe there are archives, right? But they are not spoken of. So how can I mark the presence of what's no longer there, right? So let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of this would be, I'm African, I'm East African, So, but there's a, an example in East Africa, an example in, in West Africa in terms of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. So in the continent, colonialism is talked about almost on a daily basis, right? <laughs> like if mm-hmm. you, the traffic is really bad, you know, right. it has something to do with colonialism and people will name it, right? Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to somehow think about how is slavery, right, felt and experienced in the daily lives of Africans on a daily basis, how am I going to be able to think about that, to theorize it, to document it, to somehow arrest it in the daily lives of Africans? Because they don't speak of it, right? So I can go to the archives and documents and think about the processes and the mechanisms of the slave trade, both the Indian Ocean slave trade and the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. But how can I think about it in terms of its felt, its, its presence in, in the daily lives of Africans, right? What are the traces of slavery in daily life? So one way I can do that would be to interrogate the relationship that, for instance, West Africans have to water, which mm. is a complex relationship, relationship that's marked by fear, by apprehension. So for instance, you know, you will go to the beach, you have a beach day, but no one actually goes inside the water, right? So how can I think about that as a right. form of a, trace of what is no longer there, of a history that is not, the chain of transmission has been broken, right? Right, yeah. That's one way of thinking about it. Or I can think about like in certain parts of East Africa, which is where I am from, right, where where the Indian Ocean slave trade took place, right? You can go to and observe certain kind of traditional dances where that are actually considered to be convivial and trivial and like, in a sense, you know, for lack of a better word, fun, right? Mm. That communities engage in. And if you observe them, right, and, and with this question of how are these actually dance practices marked by how are they representing, how, what is the trace of the Indian Ocean slave trade? If you look at it closer, you see like women by the beach mm. with white face mask on, right, it, essentially reenacting mm. Indian Ocean slave trade, reenacting like the Arab mercantilists who came in the kidnapping, stealing their soul, et cetera, et cetera. So those would be ways of, or I can think about, you know, and the work of Parisa Vaziri, who works on Iranian 
cultural production, especially Iranian cinema and Iranian music, and documents how the traces, how, for instance, Iranian cinema is a site of historical transmission of the Indian Ocean slave trade. Hmm. That would be one way in which I think about how we can use trace, the concept of trace, right, to document and think about these histories, right? Because essentially it's a mark of what's no longer there, right? Right, yeah. The presence that is contaminated by the past. That is so fascinating, but also it's something that at least threatens to kind of undo the inquiring mind to a certain extent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This question might be, I don't know, splitting hairs a bit, but I'm really curious as to what happens at the writing end of it, by which I mean mm. we are writing about something, an absent presence by something that is essentially not there. Mm -hmm. and, but then, you know, let's say in an academic monograph, I'm writing and that writing is trying to fix meaning in some ways. Mm -hmm. So what happens at the writing end of it? How do you mm. write about trace? Right. Well, I mean, I will say <laughs> the trace will be like there is no, you can't fix meaning in writing, mm. right? <laughs> That would be maybe a first point of, of contention. But how, I mean, that's that's an excellent question. So how do you, like, you mean, like, represent? Yes, my question is, like, just about the mechanics of academic writing. Mm -hmm. is thinking about how a monograph, let's say, moves, because it moves through vehicles like a class lecture or a job mm -hmm. talk, where mm -hmm. at each situation you have to fix meaning somehow. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you can say that this is what I'm saying. But then you're saying something about, you know, something that is so spectral. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a question that I am still kind of struggling with of how do we write about ghostly presence, right? How right. do we write about the absence? Because English is a language that I learned as an adult. Right. I think like I'm kind of stealth, right? When I'm writing, even though I'm not consciously thinking about it, I'm always trying to hide the traces of my non-native self. So I always find it really funny when I get feedback of my writing and and somebody you know um, would use they would say like you know a certain kind of Englishism right like right. they find right. the languages that are not necessarily present in the text right, right. making their way into my syntax right into the way that I'm writing about an example I would give that I it was like a specific writing choice that mm -hmm. I made specific also very particularly scholarly choice I made I'm working on a project about a camp, right, that has no archives back home, right? So it's a camp in the, during the Civil War that a lot of people went to, a lot of people from my town. I spent indeterminate time. There's a lot of unrepresentability that are embedded in this project, a lot of things that are undecidable, to use the deconstructive term. So when I was talking to these women, to these people who, survivors of the camp, their grammar will be very morphed, right? So they will use the present, past, and future tense within the same sentence when they were talking about this. Or they will use, it's kind of difficult to translate Somali grammar into English, but they would essentially talk as though they were talking about me in these three tenses. And it was kind of a way of trying to represent something that they couldn't find to be represented, right? So when I was writing, there was the urge of like trying to clean up the syntax, the grammar, the pronouns. And I realized that was actually erasing these contradictions that they mm. that, were, that are very essential yes. to how they're thinking about this act of transmission and, and memory that actually had with questions of language and of text. So I kept it there and mm. it hasn't, you know, gone into a reading public, right? So I don't know what the feedback will be, you know, right, eventually right. if it goes through peer review, et cetera, to like, this kind of sounds confusing. How can we fix it around? But so I think the question of writing of like, how can we represent 
these multiplicities of meaning, this indeterminate nature of language, being aware of this mm. ghostly presence, of this absence, how can we render that in text? It's a very difficult text and it's one that I'm like really working hard on, but I have not figured it out. That is so brilliant. I mean, this preserving a difficulty that arises from the friction of these two grammars. So mm-hmm. Let me ask you my final big question, and this is possibly the biggest question, which is, how will the trace save the world? <laughs> I don't believe theory can save the world. I think people can save the world. Even that, I go back and forth on. So I don't know if it can save the world, right? But going back to what we were just talking about, I think if we think about the trace as a tool, as a theoretical tool, think of it as a very versatile one, not only because it deepens about how we read not only the text, but the everyday and the interactions, but about uncovering these histories. I feel like it gives us access to a certain kind of knowledge production that are already ongoing, right? Like the dance or the questions about water that I was just talking to you about, those things that are already ongoing modes of knowledge production, right? Mm. And the trace kind of gives us access to that, like it attunes our vision to pay attention to it, to know how to interpret it to know how to think about it. So it gives us access to what's going on in those communities and how they keep certain histories alive while mute. That would be as far as I am willing to go about saving the world. (laughs) That's totally fair. And we asked this question just to kind of see how our guests respond. (laughs) I will admit to that. That's both a cautious, but also brave point to end on. And thank you for uh, so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.